0: From New York City to the Russian Civil War, prepare yourself for scandals, lies, and maybe even a little wrestling. It's the story of Georg Lurich, part two. (laughs) Crazy territory, stories, double crosses, and swerves. Paul history nerds. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I'm so glad you're here. We are just so excited to talk about what we're going to talk about. Speaking of talking about, what am I talking about? Who am I? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter. I am a pro wrestling booker. I am a pro wrestling, you name it. Aside from actually being a pro wrestler, I have probably done it. But more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling history nerd. And I am here with the Guy Gardner to my Kyle Rayner. It's Chongo Bronson. How the hell are you today, man?
1: Capital, I'm super excited for this part two. This cliffhanger, I literally found a cliff to like practice hanging off of while I was waiting for us to record this this second half of this. this is we're we're going to such a crazy place today i can't wait man
0: and this is one of those stories that you hopefully you listened to part uh, part 1 of the Jörg Lurich you know episode because this is a guy who was kind of a background character in uh, Hackenschmidt's story but i was just fascinated by the little bits of information i had so i went deep into it and found one of the craziest stories i have come across while doing this show if you listen to part one you, you're probably already like whoa man what a fucking madman what a self promoter what a weird legend of, of estonia wherever that is i know where it is do you but his story only gets crazier from here and i want to kind of put a pin in that for five seconds because here's something we never really talk about on this we refer to myself as a pro wrestling uh promoter a booker and Chango is actually a pro-wrestling booker. We never really self-promote on that level, but we're going to take just a few seconds to do that. Um, I am the booker and promoter for Lucha Libre and Laughs. It's stand-up comedians doing live commentary on amazing pro-wrestling. Look it up on YouTube. Look it up on social media. You'll see the cool things that we do. And tell us about the show you book.
1: Yes. uh, Well, thank you, old chap. Yes, uh, Colorado Springs Wrestling, CSW, here in the beautiful Mile High uh, You know um i took over booking csw in the beginning of 2021 and we we've been on quite a tear um i basically try to keep it very old school have like a, a classic territory kind of vibe to go with sort of the fan base in the community but then we have a lot of like postmodern character work so there's a lot of fun stuff like dick kick is super over as a tag team and they're pretty much exactly what you would expect. They kick people in the dick. And we have a lot of fun, man, just like you guys do at Triple L. And, and you know, basically both of our shows are fucking
0: awesome. So if you're in Colorado and you listen to this show and go, hey, I need something fun to do on a uh, Friday or Saturday night every now and then, by all means, come uh, check out one of the pro wrestling shows that we put together here in the state. Come say, hey, I, I love your podcast, I or I listened to your podcast once and I didn't care for it. You're terrible. I hate you. Whichever way you want to go, just you know, just you know, remember the second one will make us cry. But I just wanted to bring those up because we really don't talk about it because we are laser focused on. Pro wrestling history on this show and now we are going to get back to that because we already went over the kind of early years of Jörg Lurich growing up in Estonia becoming a physical specimen you know off to Russia over to America his big match with you know with 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 Frank Gotch which uh, you know is was was an amazing buildup and a hell of a payoff but where do you go from there because it's now 1913 He's been in America for a while. He Talked himself into a big match with Roller. He went on to a big match with Gotch. He talked himself up to a match with Stanislaw Zabisco, which had a weird ending. But now he's past all that, and now it's 1915. He's been in America off and on for a couple of years. He is now a known quantity, and things are starting to go a little rumbly over in uh, Europe, with a lot of these uh, you know nations bumping up against each other, political unrest. It's not necessarily the best time to head home and he didn't need to because he got involved in the 1915 international tournament at the new york city opera house it was a greco-roman tournament that ran and i'm not making this up four nights a week from mid-may to the end of june oh my
1: god man and and we're talking classic greco-roman rules as they were at the time so probably multiple Unlimited time limit falls. That just sounds terrible.
0: Well, it was you know terrible as far as how we conceive of pro wrestling and what we enjoy. Well, I mean, going through
1: that physically, I'm sure it was amazing, but God, that would suck.
0: Yes, because there, what it was, what what they were trying to do is they were trying to fill the vacancy left by Gotch retiring, because he, you know, Frank Gotch did retire. Lorch was his last big win, and clearly promoter Sam Rockman wanted Alexander Aber as the man. Alexander Aber was uh jo- you know, Georg Lurich's know right-along, his uh, his partner in all this and he was a big physical specimen of a man. He was very handsome. He had an exotic foreign quality as opposed to the you know foreign heel that you want your American uh, you know guy to uh, you know to 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 run over for uh, for for God and country. He was a star You could just tell, and he wanted to position Aber, and it might be Auber, I apologize. I tried finding a way to pronounce it. I uh, I, I just couldn't quite get it right, but he wanted to put this man at the top of the fucking charts. He wanted him with a belt on him. It wasn't necessarily a belt, but he wanted to turn him into the top guy, but this was a weird way to do it by doing Greco-Roman rules with this tournament because catch wrestling had been the de facto way of doing things for a couple of decades. It's much more exciting. You have the submissions. The matches don't go four hours till the promo- or till the uh, building owner turns the lights off. But I feel like what they were trying to do is kind of try to reestablish wrestling as a legitimate sport, trying to kind of like take a step back. Plus, New York City was like the... Uh, the, the home of guys like William Bulldoon, so you did have you know, the, the older wrestling fans who wanted to see legitimate competition with the Greco-Roman style. So I, I see the marketing hook, but it's just really goddamn weird to think about that today.
1: Yeah, it, it totally makes sense, for one, Uh, Muldoon was the first athletic commissioner in New York after after his championship glory and it makes sense that if he was trying to Re-legitimize wrestling as an authentic competition that he would go back to the roots that he knows and it being Greco as opposed to catch just suits suits uh the Estonians and the Russians and the, the guys who come from that background so much more for this rule set, because the rule set really differentiates the the type of fight that it is, you know? So this is very interesting how this has all come, the factors that determined this coming together in this way.
0: And in the first night of this tournament, uh, they saw Lurich beat George Sandel, could be Sandele, of Greece in front of six Thousand fans, and this was considered a massive upset really yeah because on night two because you know Because keep in mind a large at this point was rocketing towards 40 You know he had lost to gotch He was clearly kind of seen as a guy being on the uh, the The back end of his career because keep in mind 1915 being 40 is a very different thing than being 40 today.
1: Oh, yeah I mean you're probably the last person alive in your Oregon trail wagon at that point You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, like 40 at that point was probably like Being 60 today, like if you took a a guy like uh, um, you know Randy Couture, where he was winning uh, gold in his 40s, that was not normal. I mean, it wasn't normal when it was happening, but back in those days, that would be like alright who's the wizard who gave him the potion because this is impossible so it was considered an upset I kind of feel like that a lot of these matches were uh, were legitimate Uh, you know it's wrestling no athletic commission so of course nothing's gonna be a hundred percent on the up and up but I feel like most of these were shoot matches and On night two he beat Henrico Silva in a lightning-quick three minutes 12 seconds which is completely bananas which means one of three things happened he outclassed him some weird little silly thing happened where an opening happened or somebody slipped or Hippodrome but either way a three-minute win in Greco-Roman is bananas no matter what
1: it speaks to his ability to Uh, impose his style because Greco-Roman is very different than almost every other style of grappling that these guys specialize in and if you come across if a Greco-Roman expert under Greco-Roman rules comes across a different type of grappler freestyle folk style catch they can really mow them over especially if they have a physical size advantage which I wouldn't be surprised if he was bigger than most of these guys.
0: And in another bracket, Alexander Aberg was also on an absolute tear, besting Karl Vogel and Bernoff Hansen both in four minutes. Seems pretty quick for world-class Greco-Roman matches. Could they have been? Uh, A been, been- and if you're wondering how well this was going, as far as selling tickets, good press, whatever, because. Clearly, Sam Ratchman wanted Alexander Eber and in the other bracket, uh, Vladislav Zabisko, Stanislaw's brother, to meet in the finals, which is awfully hard to arrange without a, a hippodrome here and there, but this did huge business. 6,000 people this is a this is a huge opera house we're talking multi-level balconies 6,000 people showed up pretty much every single night wow. to watch this and it was also good marketing because so many of these wrestlers were you know the top of their country and therefore they had the resources to get the fuck out of Europe as World War One was breaking out so he didn't even have to oh, pay yeah. trans which makes me envious as a promoter so all these wrestlers who are top-level guys would come from Europe to escape the war, and he could just say, oh, he's the champion of Greece. He's the champion of, uh, of Lithuania. He's the champion of the, you know, of, of the Hungarian empire. Not necessarily true, but why let the truth get in the way of good promoting when it comes to wrestling?
1: Well, what a, a fantastic vehicle to be able to bring some talented guys over here you know, before the war, so they don't, we don't have to fight against them later, old chap. We've got them on our side, yeah. Um, it, as far as the tournament goes, it sounds to me like, first of all, anytime you are going to present something as legitimate and you're, the fix is in, you want to minimize that as much as possible. So I'm sure they had as few of these individual matches predetermined or fixed in any way as possible to make it look as legit as possible. But it sounds like the golden boy is getting the full Goldberg.
0: Oh, a hundred percent, because again, you know, everybody was coming out because this is an attempt to reestablish Greco-Roman wrestling in a Greco-Roman wrestling historic territory, if you will, and you're trying to set up a clearly heel versus face match, totally. the big muscular bodybuilder Aber versus the sinister pole uh, Zabisco. and as we see with so much in uh, UFC and boxing, you can't tell a legitimate storyline very well when it is legitimate fights how many big matchups they were trying to make when the ufc get derailed by injuries or flash weird losses
1: yeah or or just the classic problem with a cinderella story right you have your ncaa tournament 64 teams there's a cinderella story but they never ultimately win there's you know It's too hard to control a narrative when you have authentic competition on the line to craft the most emotionally eliciting and compelling story possible. That's not the nature of competition. Competition is there to win, not to tell the greatest story. So oftentimes, when something will build to a great story, it'll veer because that's not the mechanism that's driving it, you know? And it sucks, but that's why we do what we do, because we can control the narrative. Okay.
0: It makes me think a lot of, you know, in Olympic history, the Russian great wrestler Alexander Carlin, who ran through everybody. He was so dominant. He just was just crushing everybody in his path, and then and I think it was actually his final Olympics, he lost to American Rulon Gardner, which was just by points. It was a you know a 1-0. I think it was like off of like a, a hold break. It was it was a weird, like, you know, one of those little technical wrestling things that if you're thinking of things in terms of like a, a fight, it doesn't mean anything. But in wrestling, a one-point advantage means you lose. So you've derailed the greatest Russian wrestler of all time. And how does he lose off of a weird point break off of that one? And then everybody expects Rulon Gardner to go on to great things, and he really didn't. You know, he had like I think like two MMA fights that were very unspectacular, and then he lost a toe to uh, you know uh, frostbite off of a a weird adventure through uh, his the woods by his house. And you cannot control and make heroes and great villains through real life. That's kind of like something you look back on history and try to apply a narrative to. Doesn't work when you're trying to do a tournament over the course of a month with, I think it was like triple elimination rules. You can't do it legitimately. You gotta kind of play with things a little bit. So I'm going to just officially say I feel like this was half work, half shoot, or sorry, half work, half shoot. Just to make sure the right people get to the right place to keep people coming back to watch the tournament for, you know, four times a fucking week for a month.
1: Oh, yeah. And, and with that format, there's a lot of wiggle room and play there. They could have an individual night where the matchups are such where they could say, all right, everything's a shoot tonight because this person's in the crowd and we need to look legit or whatever. And then they've got, you know, their matchups, they're, they're picking their spots. That's the only way you can do this and make it come off believable is you gotta pick your key spots to affect the minimal amount of outcomes possible and still get what you want. That's the only way this can work.
0: And one that I feel was definitely a Legitimate match was Lurch's twenty-minute draw against uh, Joe Antigen of Mongolia. I'm sure I pronounced that completely wrong, but he is long dead. I don't feel like his ghost is going to come tap me on the shoulder. But yeah, you did still have draws. You still had long matches that were probably not a lot of fun to watch, but they at least felt legitimate. And this isn't that era where you know Olympic-style wrestling, which was primarily Greco-Roman, was. More prestigious. It wasn't the favorite of the bar crowd, but it had more prestige, and I feel like that was, you know, kind of the, the selling point on this, no matter how little fun it was to watch. And like I said, the promoter was banking on a Vlalit Zabisco versus Alexander Aber feud to keep people coming back, keep them engaged week after week. And then Aber and Lurich went to a 20-minute draw. And a few days later, Abra eliminated Lurich in a one-hour, six-minute match. And if you think those things are shoots, I, you know, I've got a bridge to sell you.
1: Yeah, that's pretty incredible, especially after he's been going four minutes and five minutes and doing the, the short the short runs, but getting the draw to set up the big finish. Yeah, that that's, you know, again, classic booking template this is how it's done and it's it's done very well cuz they basically had to save wrestling with this tournament this grand exhibition of, of presented as authentic competition
0: and i feel like the uh, the the matches with aber and Lurich was two things obviously Lurich has no problem putting over his uh, his friend and, uh, you know, sort of pupil in a way. Lurich was older. He clearly wasn't the, the, the guy everybody wanted to see. The, he wasn't part of the plan, but he was a guy who was clearly willing to do business and new show business from competition. I did try really hard to find the definitive rules on this because you know like I said we'd have a 20 minute draw you know one time and then an hour long win the next I don't know how they were stacking things up I didn't have that information I apologize for not knowing what happened in a wrestling tournament in 1915 and in the New York Times June fifteenth, 1915 edition, they reported on the match between Lurich and German wrestler Wilhelm Berner in a match the reporter referred to as between the Teuton and the Cossack. They're making it very race-identified. And after 37 minutes, they tumbled off the stage and Lurich hit his head on the table. The ref tried to restart the action, but Burner claimed Lurich's shoulders touched the floor, which seems an odd claim for something outside the stage platform. The ref gave him a warning, but Berner cl- gave a speech claiming he won, so the ref awarded it to Lurich. And I'm not sure if this was the same thing uh, reported incorrectly on one date, but the New York Times, June seventeenth, Alexander Aber and German wrestler Wilhelm Berner had a bit of a whoopsie doodle in their match as well when they fell off the side of the stage. There were no rings in these matches; it was all on a stage with like carpet put down. So that was a fun little risk, and they fell twelve feet to the floor with Aber on top. Burner managed to fall even further down into a second pit which I assume was for the orchestra and Burner claimed to be fine but after a break and a second round he quote broke down behind the stage and wept like a child.
1: Holy shit man. Now I don't know what
0: to think cuz that does not
1: sound like the bump you want to take intentionally if you're trying to hippodrome the thing.
0: No no that 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 one seems like like a legitimate fuck up because keep in mind once again this isn't in a ring there's no ropes this Ugh. is just carpet with maybe a little bit of padding on the stage at the opera house so they fell off they fell 12 fucking feet down Ugh. landed and then he rolled off and fell into a second pit for you know the fucking percussions or whatever and i fully understand popping back up adrenaline going oh yeah not, you know feeling stupid already wanting like, let's get back in there and then the you know, your brain starts going you idiot, what the fuck just happened? Your 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 back is fucked, your your shoulder is, you know, this totally. and then you kind of like have a bit of a meltdown once you have time to think about it. So it's like I understand that, but holy shit, what a what a thing to happen.
1: Man, that is a really, really crazy bump. And I, I now cause at first I I thought for sure the first incident where they went off the the, the stage would have been uh it was smelling very hippodrome-y. And then when it happens again with the other opponent now it's like okay the, this is setting it up but for that fall to happen that is that is brutal that is some brutal shit.
0: and i don't know about you but i'm picturing a man like you know it's 1915 a man in his tuxedo and his top hat white gloves stands up raises one hand and starts ec dub ec dub Right, <laughs> because <laughs> so that was totally a fucking, like, New Jack spot. Like, if, if that was a work, that would have been the most, like, fucking viewed thing on Twitter, oh, uh, in totally. wrestling Twitter for a while. That's something, like, like fucking, uh, you know, like, Effie would have done at, uh, you know, GCW that it, it, it goes viral. It's it's completely insane, but unfortunately, uh, yeah, not a lot of safety precautions for uh, wrestling at an opera house in 1915.
1: Well, the way you know it's a work was because that wasn't even the finish! No, Chango <laughs> <Jungle> digresses. <laughs>
0: Uh, Vlad Zabisco and Jor Lurich wrestled to a tie the same night, and according to the El Paso Herald, Lurich was rushed to the hospital with internal injuries. I don't think that was probably real, but it does add drama to the tournament. My assumption, I could be wrong. And I assume the same thing happened twice, two nights apart, which means either Berger had balance issues, bad luck, or the Works were booked in the weirdest goddamn fashion. I assumed it's that, because the same goddamn thing happened again, according to the January 26th, nineteen fifteen Burlington Hawkeye. Aber and Burner were matched up, and after 36 minutes of wrestling, Burner's head struck the press table and was KO'd, mm. unable to continue. Aber and Lurch then wrestled to a draw to uh, try to save the show, I guess. But completely fucking bananas, completely fucking bananas that the the table is somehow catching more wins than uh, some of the wrestlers.
1: Yeah, is this the the genesis of the table spot? Because we've got so many, uh, you know, incidences now as we get into the later rounds of this tournament that they're ending up out, you know, what is essentially outside of the ring and it's kind of getting hardcore. That's pretty crazy.
0: And... Speaking of crazy, the tournament ended in the worst kind of train wreck in the form of a legitimate match. Again, you cannot predict a legitimate match. And keep in mind, this tournament has been going for a month, four nights a week, triple elimination. There are going to be some hardcore fans who have been going to every single one. Uh, Their tuxedo probably smells terrible because they only had one of those to wear, can't get it cleaned. BO was probably less of an issue back in those days, whatever. Eber and Zabisco met in the finals, because of course they did. It was the narrative of the tournament, and they went so long that the newspaper reporters had to submit the stories before it ended, so the public couldn't find out what happened the next day when they read the sports page, which ended up being a three-hour, 40 minute match that ended with Zabisco collapsing, unable to continue, and the match declared a draw. So Ugh. it all led up to this absolute, it just fizzled. It turned into something Ugh. that nobody enjoyed. There was no conclusion. And because, you know, this guy, yet again, you know, it must be like a family uh, genetic thing, like his brother, uh, he just collapsed and uh, couldn't continue. That is
1: so. So terrible. First of all, they, the the first t- that's this is like the first example of basically going off the air before the finish,
0: <laughs> yeah, it was, it was like, <laughs> like UFC four or something it, like that. Yeah, where, the wait, newspaper equivalent. Yeah, because people were picking up the paper, like they'd been following it for uh, you know five cents an issue or whatever the hell it was back then, and they find out that they have no idea what happened because the you know the paper the news had to be submitted so they could you know set the type and you know make make uh, make prints. So nobody knew what happened, but the people who did know what happened possibly were even more disappointed. And the narrative they tried setting up over the course of a month—so that's like, Jesus Christ—that's probably what is that like, sixteen to twenty nights of of uh, of, of selling around six thousand tickets, and it all ends in <laughs>
1: how do you have a tournament end in a draw? Preposterous, man! A tournament. Is to find a winner. How can they have the final match ending in a draw? I mean, imagine how much that would suck. You get the paper. You know, you're, you're young Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. You get your paper, and you're looking at the sports section and the hippodromes, and you see the, the finals of the tournament has not finished yet. So now you're super excited, Cliffhanger. You get the second paper, and it's a draw?
0: And not even like a, a, a like... You know, we fought till the time ran out. It's like one guy just kind of got dehydrated, probably, and and wasn't able to continue. I assume you know maybe they were just you know serving like uh, you know milk right out of the cow instead of water ringside. I don't know what they were trying to do sports medicine wise, but yeah, it was a fizzle. And you know this isn't like it was some sort of uh, you know you know gymnasium show or at the fucking dive bar. You know they they had operas to perform, so they were not able to. Put a rematch together between Aber and Zabisco until October of the same year. So months have gone by. No real, you know, like like I said, there's no like heat for a rematch. It's not like somebody like poked somebody in the eye or somebody fell on their head and got KO'd. It was just a I'm I don't feel well. I have to lie down. I'm sorry. And. Aber did win. He won in the seventh 10-minute round. He was declared champion, but the Greco-Roman style wasn't what the cool kids were into, especially outside of New York. The further west you went, the less anybody gave a shit about Greco-Roman. And with men like Joe Stetcher and Ed Strangler Lewis making a big impact and being closer tied to Frank Gotch's legacy most of the public wasn't buying it they didn't see Aber as the man they didn't see him as the guy to beat you know who is who is now the top of the heap he is just a guy who won a weird tournament in New York under rules that people don't enjoy watching he won a draw this is terrible you know and it
1: shows it's also interesting to see the the way that the level of work, the level of Carney showmanship dropped off as soon as Lurich was out of the equation because that is not the finals and not the, the finish that the people wanted, man. That's go away heat.
0: Yeah, it, it reminds me a lot. And granted, it was much different circumstances and reasoning behind it. But it made me think of that uh, Ken Shamrock, Dan Severn UFC fight in, uh, in Michigan. Granted, they, were, they didn't want to you know, break the rules because the Athletic Commission stepped in. It was a whole different thing. Yeah. But it was still a 30-minute dance draw. And that didn't result in people being like, Woo, I got to see this uh, happen again. It was literally like, I paid money to see this. Fuck
1: you. Yeah, I just can't believe that they that they didn't call that they called a draw. That is just like the worst finish ever. Like, how do you finish a turn? A Super Bowl winner as a draw. I mean, what, what are we doing here? We're trying to legitimize the sport. This is why we can't have nice things.
0: Yeah, you'd think they would at least have some sort of uh, you know rules in place, and because it's Greco-Roman, this this shit happens all the time when you go that long. You would have at least thought they'd have a an overtime round or something in the rules for the for the finals, where it's like, oh hey, we uh, if it goes to this, it's like uh, you know like the old pride rules where if, it, if it's a draw they go to another round you would think they would have made some sort of arrangement you know i don't know if it was like the athletic commission i mean i think was mold i think Muldoon may have still been the athletic commissioner at this point but They put it in place to have a conclusion, and they didn't have the tools to do a conclusion. They're not able to do a rematch for several months from Uh. from June to October, at which point nobody is as fucking interested in it. They have a bad taste in their mouth who knows if they're going to even want to watch this fucking show meanwhile that uh, you know kind of newer catch style where it's faster paced it's almost always a work but it's more entertaining is picking up you know steam all the way across the uh, country so you finally are able to crown a champion meanwhile nobody re- recognizes him as a uh, as the top guy because there's all these catch guys fucking subbing people left and right and looking like badasses doing it
1: yeah, that, you know, that sucks because it, it, it really diminished his opportunity to build his own legacy where the average wrestling fan would know his name today. I mean, he's obviously been he's had a career that would rival just about anyone we've ever talked about and just a life of anyone we've ever talked about but he's he's kinda of lost as an afterthought because he never was known as the guy
0: yeah well Aber was kind of living in the shadow of Schmidt as far as most Americans were concerned he did have a star quality but he competed under rules most Americans didn't care about and he didn't have like the big resume of beating these big stars He's a guy who, like, would have made it on TV if he was on, like, you know, Raw once a week or something like that. But he didn't have the platform to get over outside of, you know, whoever the hell watched him win any matches that might have been impressive. And both Lurich and Aber did return for the fall tournament. They were still trying to build on the business of that of the first tournament, which was huge. And it was now inclusive of catch wrestling, gimmicks, and kind of obvious works. Lurich won his first match before being defeated by the masked Marvel in a controversial match that at first ended in a draw but was given an overtime at the last minute by promoter Rajman and the masked Marvel slammed Lurich who verbally submitted before being pinned he claimed he hit his head and was injured and in the end Aber might have been able to claim his spot as the top Greco-Roman guy, but nobody cared. The stars of the tournament were young catch wrestlers like Ed Strangler Lewis and the Masked Marvel, and plenty of gimmicky drama, but that is a story for another time.
1: Oh yes, because we are going to get deep into the, the backstory of the first hero, right? The Masked Marvel! Oh wait, wrong Ethos, but yes... Yes, oh, Spider-Man wasn't the first uh, superhero to dabble in pro wrestling under a mask, old chap. But that's a story for another
0: day. And after his, uh, you know, his his big moment, his big uh, time in this tournament, on the backslide of his career, Lurich found himself linked to the infamous German spy Nexi Storch by virtue of good old-fashioned horniness. According to the Washington Times, June 23rd, 1918, much of the information that ruined Russian engagements with the German army came via New York City when Lurich, after palling around with Russian officers visiting the US, would tell the exotic dancer turned spy, which according to rumor, led to several assassination attempts once he returned to Russia. He made a lot of weird enemies, there's a lot of drama, a lot of conjecture, but in 1917, him and Eber made their trip home the long way. Via Japan, into China, up into Mongolia, into Siberia, and back into Russia, and then finally arriving in Estonia that fall. And what made this extra dangerous was a little event you might have heard of, World War I. And that's where, you know, a lot of that rumor of him accidentally giving information to a a sexy spy, and that's why he had to run for it. That's one story. There's another one we'll talk about in a minute. But either way, he did make his way back to his home country. And while Estonia wasn't exactly the slaughterhouse that France and Germany had become, it was still a dangerous place to be. And the final tournament Lurich and Eber competed in, which took place in the Estonian capital of Tallinn, ended unfinished because of approaching German troops. Holy shit!
1: That, first of all, that is a unique finish. I don't think I've ever heard the World War One German troop invasion finish before. But that is a hell of a way to go off hot and leave leave them one more.
0: So. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like, hey, uh, I'm sorry, uh, tournament's not going to end uh, because of uh, German troops on the border. No refunds.
1: Yeah, yes, 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 yes. Single file.
0: And I did try to find any information on his time in Japan. I don't know if he was just simply traveling through it. I don't know if he was, you know, just you know, doing any sort of uh you know, any any sort of exhibitions or anything. I just read that that's the way he took going back into Russia and on his way to Estonia. And as the German troops were approaching, they fled to St. Petersburg and then on to southern Russia. Unfortunately, the ability to ply their trade or damn near any trade, collapsed with the start of the Russian Civil War in the fall of 1917. In the chaos and socioeconomic collapse of Russia after their disastrous entry into World War One, the monarchy had been overthrown, and after a tense and not terribly well-run power sharing, the various factions marched to an all-out civil war that lasted over five years. And this is where I found a completely apesh Story from Stanislaw Zabisko, printed in the Casper Daily Tribune, January 15, 1921, claiming that while all three were in Russia, Aber tried to avoid paying Zabisco the 6000 rubles he owed the Polish grappler. According to Zabisco, Aber told his friends and the police that Stanislaus was an Austrian spy and he was arrested. He defended himself by telling them that he was a wrestler who beat Aber, and the police made them wrestle to prove it. He was, of course, victorious in this tale, and according to the telling in the Washington Herald, January 1st, 1922, he and Eber had to wrestle, and if he had lost, he would have been executed on the spot. The place was packed with Russian soldiers who were paid to cheer Eber. Zabisko won the match and had to throw the money to the soldiers so they would grab it so he could get out alive, then wandered the streets for months until the armistice was signed and he could finally return to Poland. How's that for a crazy fucking tale to tell which I don't believe a fucking word of.
1: Dude, that's like five movies in one story. That was like Rocky 4 and, you know, the the Passion of the Christ and Water and the, you know, Begging for Merchants. Oh my god, man, that's incredible. The one part I do believe is that I totally buy that Russian police would be like oh yeah you you wrestler you wrestler okay let's see you wrestle I see you wrestle if you win you live i maybe buy you a shot of vodka
0: yeah it does it sounds more like a kung fu movie yeah like <laughs> kind of like history because this is like you know once again this is a man who you know didn't have anybody to contradict his story so he's in, in you know in Russia there were so many factors and you know it's so many um, so many so many so many groups trading power back and forth during the civil war yeah. and Aber and Lurch were connected to the imperial army and so they had their friends, but when the Bolsheviks would take over, they were the ones on the run. So it's it's very funny that he's trying to create this position where oh this wrestler you know that that is a uh, you know that is that is a rival of my family he uh, he owed me money and then he tried to have me arrested because he's a dirty rotten you know you know fink and then I you know I had to say I have the the superior wrestling and then I had to prove it and if I lost I would have been killed I mean it's completely batshit and I don't believe it happened at all but once again never let. Let the truth get in the way of a good story when wrestling is involved. That's right, man. And, you know, he
1: wasn't going to be one-upped by the the German troop invasion finish. He had, to, he had to out Hippodrome, man. it's what we're here for.
0: He also claimed that when the Civil War conflict led to a shift of power, Eber and Lurich had been arrested themselves and had their possessions confiscated and were sentenced to death when the Bolsheviks took power. They were let go due to some political contacts, and according to Zabisco, the two men were, quote, somewhere in Turkey. The May 18th Washington Times article titled, Lorich and Eberg now thought to be living, weird wording, old timey, recounted the similar idea that the two wrestlers were marked for death by the Bolsheviks for their loyalty to the imperial forces, but it survived and were seeking passage back to the United States. Imagine being like caught up in all this weird fucking like 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 bullshit drama to the point where you're 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 running around trying to like keep your ass out of the fire and it's being reported in the U.S. because you made such a weird impact. This is when I am very glad
1: that motherfuckers don't know my shoot name. <laughs> yes, oh, yes, George. Just- Lurich, I did not know that man. I, I, I'm from a small Estonian town. That sounds very, you know, that doesn't yep. sound like our, our my, native countrymen.
0: My name is Guy Incognito. I don't <laughs> know who you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it, it, sometimes it's uh, not easy to be a celebrity when uh, you know the politics and war, uh, you know, come come knocking on the door. And another crazy version is according to the Washington Times, June 23rd, 1918, claiming that Lurich and Aber fled back to Russia via. Siberia, but they were trailed from New York to Vladivostok by two beautiful Russian women, obviously Black Widow assassins for the Marvel fans out there. So I, I, I love again the like just the the the, the James Bondish uh, you know pulp fiction drama oh, totally. where it's like oh we were being chased by two female assassins who were uh, you know on our trail from from New York to Russia. It's amazing, man. This is it's so
1: it's so funny to me how many you know thematic undertones that have become major things in movies and cinema and tv and sport you know that like you said the james bond undertones to it it's just so amazing how these and these were reported in the in the newspaper man this is reported as fact
0: And again, never letting a a tragic situation uh, go unrewarded to those who were there to tell the tale. Another fun telling, according to the June 2nd, 1918 Omaha Daily Bee, they told a different story and this time from Jack Curley. Everybody's favorite dirty promoter, the man who put together the, the, the Hackenschmidt-Gotch uh, rematch and absconded with almost all the fucking money. A man who was a constant thorn in the side of every promoter until he would get his cut. This is a man that is just, oh my god, everybody wanted to uh, probably beat the shit out of him, but nobody could fucking outflank him for terribly long. And he told this version. Curly... Who claimed that Lurich and Aber fled the country to avoid a match with Stanislaw Zabisco? Woo! <laughs> yeah, he did. And he ducked that match, and he and, and Lurich knew that he would be sued into poverty, and that's why they fled, and they were both executed in Russia. The <sighs> article states, "Quote: The story is told by Jack Curley, celebrated wrestling imp- impresario, big-time promoter, and city slicker, so it must be true." that is
1: Amazing, you you you're ducking me so bad, Jabroni? You are going back to your home country to be executed by the Red Army? I,
0: I honestly want to spend a little time just reading old Omaha Daily Bee articles because read the quotes or listen to the quotes we give for the uh, uh, like the 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 Farmer Burns Evan Lewis match. Their sass level is through the fucking roof. They they always like just like threw those like clever fucking little shots at everybody. I don't know who their writers were, but they they deserve. To be celebrated. And whether any aspect of any part of this is true, one thing that we know happened is Lurich and Aberg fled to southern Russia to the city of Armavir. I definitely mispronounced that, not Russian, sorry. ethnically Armenian city, hoping to escape Russia as a whole across the Black Sea via boat, hoping to get back to the United States where they don't have to live like fucking refugees and, uh, you know, being chased by army factions and whatever else weird shit was happening. But their bad luck continued as numerous and terrible battles rocked the city and surrounding areas. Many Black Sea sailors took the side of the Bolsheviks and sunk their own Owned ships in protest, and up to 30,000 men formed the Taman army to fight the Royalists and the German intervention forces. So this doesn't make it very easy to, uh, you know, get across a sea. No, but you know,
1: it's still a lot easier than going one-on-one with Stanislaus the Visco brother! You better flee the country and the continents!
0: Yeah, that, that that story was almost like. Imagine if like uh, you know, no other news came out, and it was like the Navy SEAL told uh, Osama bin Laden, "We have to go one on one right now." It's like, what the absolute fuck are you talking about? Why why would this be a thing? Why would this be like? No nobody's this bored that they have to like create entertainment like this. Oh my God, what are you doing? But yeah, so they were trapped in this in this in this town different armies fighting over the territory and that's about as deep as i'm really going to go with that because there are no short stories about world war one but i just wanted to illustrate that it's hard to live in a city with three armies having a grudge match and most boats are at the bottom of the goddamn harbor
1: yeah what a ridiculous path Any one of those timelines, any one of the ways that he ended up there of a take your pick, that is all just incredible. I can't imagine what his mindset was at this point
0: and in 1920, the city was in full-blown conflict, and occupying forces changed hands several times, which led to mass civilian death from combat, starvation, and disease, especially typhoid fever, which raised epidemic style through the area. For those unfamiliar with typhoid fever, congratulations, you live in a time when it's uncommon and there are working vaccines to keep you from catching it. Typhoid is a human-specific bacterial illness caused by poor sanitations, specifically poop in your drinking water, which is common during city sieges like this, especially at this time. You know, sanitations go uh, straight to shit, if you will, uh, as soon as uh, your town starts getting shelled. Typhoid fever causes, believe it or not, fever. Respiratory infection, intestinal bleeding, and delirium. It's a terrible disease and a terrible way to die. And George Lurich was among the biologically unlucky, caught typhoid fever, and died on January twentieth, 1920, at the age of 43.
1: What a legend. I mean, I. Uh, it kind of sucks to go out in that way, but one thing that we have seen over and over again is that was pretty normal at this you know at this time in history that you're probably going to die of some fucked up shit
0: yeah, and, and, and his, uh, you know, his, his friend and compatriot and fellow Estonian legend Alexander Eberg also contracted typhoid fever but recovered just in time to then catch the pneumonia that killed him on February 15th of the same year. Being a city at war, there were no options other than to bury them both in one grave inside the Armivar German Cemetery.
1: Wow, that's incredible, man. To think that, that both of those guys... Ended up being buried together halfway across the country when they were in the main event or the fight. You know, building up to the finals and uh, of this tournament and and having their competitions and having this rivalry to to end up in that place together is pretty remarkable.
0: And whether it was lack of business opportunities, whether it was the the rumor of him uh, accidentally spilling secrets to a uh, sexy German spy. I would love to know what motivated him to go to, you know, try to get back to uh, Estonia because keep in mind this isn't the day of CNN or Twitter. You don't really get like a great impression of what's happening, you know, yeah. during, you know, during this time. So, I feel like it was probably uh, him thinking, "Oh yeah, you know, Europe's at war all the time. I'll just kind of sneak in through the back and everything's going to be fine." And then you go, "Oh my god, it's the worst conflict on earth up to this point." He tries to run for it, go back to uh, you know St. Petersburg where he has allies. Oh shit, things go even worse. Try to run down here, thinking you're going to make that uh, that one last uh, that one last little bit of uh, you know good luck. That one last pull no that way. pull that rabbit out of the hat, and then oh nope, you you are stuck and you die a weird refugee death of illness and end up in a grave very far from home, which is really goddamn terrible, really goddamn tragic, but. Mm. Also, really goddamn dramatic, if we're uh, trying to put a uh, a weird swerve, almost like Sergi Leone, uh, you know, Western uh, punctuation mark at the end of the story.
1: Yeah, there's no riding off into the sunset here, other than it's, it's you know, it's sort of fitting for the character in terms of how he is not fully remembered more than a background character, and it's kind of a fitting end to a character in an ethos but it's it sucks, man, and it, it's a hard life, and, and he did so much in that amount of time, and I'm really glad that we had the opportunity to put his story out there, because it's really amazing and there's not that much said about what
0: he accomplished. Well, there's not a lot said about it in the United States, because while he is this weird background character to Hackenschmidt, Godge, etc., Because he had this amazing ability to talk himself up and be a self-promoter and turn himself into a a legend in his own mind, even though he might not have been a legend in his own time, and he had this weird death, and he never faced the weird disgrace of Hackenschmidt, he became the subject of increasingly fantastic tall tales in his native Estonia after this. To the rural people of the country, he might as well have been Hercules. There are stories like... One hot and sunny summer day, Lurich had been sitting on a hill slope in Marja, and when the heat was becoming too much for him, he ran down into the valley to freshen himself up with a cool spring water. While running, he hit his foot against the rock and fell on all fours on the stone. Then he stood up, went to the spring, put his feet and hands in the spring, and washed them with spring water. That is where he got the great strength. He had taken that rock again at which he had hit his foot and played with it as though it were a potato. The rock is said to be still there on the edge of Viking Marja Memorial Hill, covered with moss. The Folk tales are tales of hu- superhuman strength used to help the common man, from lifting a cow over a fence at the request of an old woman, to revealing his weightlifting and wrestling medals to inspire peasants standing up to the rich landowners. In Estonian libraries, there are literally volumes of these crazy tall tales about George Lurich like, coming through like a goddamn you know Greek hero, uh, righting wrongs and inspiring uh, those who need inspiring
1: there it is that's the that's the sunset ending and you know the cowboy riding off into the sunset ending that he truly deserves and it's awesome because he's basically he's like the Estonian Chuck Norris now that's great that's
0: exactly who he should be because he was a hell of a worker man and and that's here's the thing and it's like this is why he and not Hackenschmidt became the stuff of legend Lurich never emigrated from his home he traveled but Hackenschmidt went to England and he never really came back after his American adventures. Lurich died young enough, far away enough, to be seen as a tragic hero. And unlike Hackenschmidt, he never made an ass of himself in the biggest match of the world and was never reduced to a broken, crying has-been. He
1: died young enough to not see himself
0: become the villain. And Lurich was a master bullshitter as all great wrestlers are having a sense of self-advertisement and self-promotion he made damn sure the world saw him as a giant no matter what hence his constant referencing to beating an untrained Hackenschmidt, and i've even found references to him sending home an outright lie about beating gotch in america there are now clubs that are named after him and his training system and even though he never had any connection to the people and the places that took his legacy for themselves. And Lurich also had a number of imitators who used his name for advertising themselves, the so-called false Luriches. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the furthest false Lorich was in Australia, in a place which which Lorich himself never visited and probably couldn't find on a map. Much like the fake Hackenschmidt, uh, as we brought up in the, uh, the, the Farmer Burns episode, and many of other wrestling names, from Zabisco to Gotch, they get recycled for the sake of fake legacy and legitimacy, and that's why he's a legend in Estonia, in Russia, no matter how little we hear about him in America and in the West.
1: Well, now we know, and you know that's it, man. The greatest gimmicks are are repeated and recycled. Look at the Nature Boy, and it's it's one of the highest compliments you can get. Is imitation is the highest form of flattery, and if there are fake luriches in Australia, that's awesome because that means you are over, old chap.
0: Oh yeah, I mean if you think about it, in the in the uh, you know nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, the lack of real like international once again you're not watching the news you're not watching espn you're not looking at the internet and seeing this guy blow up and trying to then claim to be his cousin you really have to be legendary at that juncture for your name to be enough to try to fucking steal it
1: yeah and and his name is lived on he's a he is truly become a legend a creature greater a myth uh you know a mythical hero and that is you know, that's about as beautiful as an ending you could hope for that for for that arc.
0: So while the man died tragically, his story lives on to this day as a crazy folk hero, and those folk tales I feel like aren't even the craziest part of his life. I mean, the the tales of trying to fucking outrun, you know beautiful female assassins and, yeah. you know, and having a, an affair with a German spy or whatever bullshit uh, Stanislaw Zabisco was trying to uh, spin to make him look like an asshole. Uh, which honestly I feel like was good payback from when uh, Lawrence was telling the press that he used to mop the floor with totally. Zabisco, even though the record was completely different. I'd probably dump shit on him too if he was uh, you know, f- you know potentially dead and unable to defend himself at that point. But again that's the magic of pro wrestling. As close as you can get to the truth It's still conjecture, hearsay, promos, bullshit, carny lies, and the attempt for everybody to sell themselves as the better product.
1: And it's a fucking beautiful thing, man. This is a glorious story, and I am so happy to hear it. And I love how he both fled the country to Duxabisco and had the secret police almost kill Zabisco in his country
0: and then he had to fight his way out and it's just, it worked both ways man, it's amazing. Yep. Whatever the truth is, the the story lives on. I'm glad I uh, dug as deep as I did because holy shit, what a story! And speaking of stories, things are going to be pretty interesting over these next few these next few episodes because remember that uh, 1915 tournament uh, we 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 kind of touched on where uh, the the table won a lot of matches. We're going to kind of go back and revisit that a little more in detail, especially with the themes and how it influenced wrestling, because I want to. and what we're going to be doing is we're going to be kind of bridging that. Gap from the uh, the Hackenschmidt and Gotch years through the 20s to the days of the Gold Dust Trio, we're going to watch wrestling be reborn into a crazy, entertaining, centralized—you uh, know—booking idea. We're going to talk about the men who uh, you know made wrestling what it is, how they spread it across the country, and how they defended it against uh, you know those who uh, sought to uh, get their piece under. Any circumstances, so I'm really looking forward to the next few uh, episodes as we bring ourselves into wrestling in the 20s. Hopefully, you join us on that uh, on that adventure. Are you excited about that? Oh my God, this is this is
1: the I guess you could call it like the flashpoint or the 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 patient zero moment when you can pinpoint the genesis of what we would consider the modern or the the more modern territory era man going into the gold Dust trio this is where it's about to get fucking crazy
0: and that's uh, those are the stories for the next few episodes so please join us uh, for those if you haven't uh, subscribed on whatever platform you listen to this please subscribe you'll you'll find out right when uh, new episodes drop on Tuesday mornings make sure you 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 like us on uh, you know Facebook follow us on Twitter you know check out the Instagram cuz I like to post uh, the the old photos that I find along with all of this It's a crazy journey. I'm glad you're here with us. Uh, For Chango Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. We'll talk to you next time. Cut,
1: print, martini.